Who should lead? Who should lead? That is the big question that is put before us tonight as we move to the second presidential debate tonight uh, and the theatrics that we may encounter this evening in that. Uh, but we, we have to make a decision this time of year, this particular season, as to who will lead our country. And tonight is just another chapter in the ongoing drama of that decision-making process. And this is the question, who should lead, specifically, who should lead the local church that we've been considering for the last couple of weeks. And so, today is our third sermon on this passage at the beginning of the book of Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, instructing him what to do with regard to the Christian's in Crete, to the various cities there. And we come to verse five, and we see that Titus has been told by Paul to to put things in order that were lacking and to appoint elders in every city as Paul had instructed him already in person. Paul and Titus had been there in Crete and now Titus is going to go, I mean Titus is going to remain there and he's going to do this work of putting leaders in place. And we've been looking at these qualifications for elders, overseers, pastors. And by the way, uh, these are all the same thing. So when you encounter the word elder or overseer or pastor, they they all mean exactly the same thing. They differ only with regard to the, the particular aspect that is being captured. But it's all the same office. And so early on in the history of the church, there was a distinction between elders and bishops or, or uh, this word overseer. And so you began to see a kind of a distinct hierarchy in the early church where you had bishops who, who would oversee priests or, or parish pastors and this began to develop and we see this today particularly in Roman Catholicism. But when we go to the scriptures, we see that this office, position, role, title, whatever you want to call it, is, is really one and the same. And an elder is an overseer and he is also a pastor. So five things that we've been looking at. If you'll go ahead and put that up, that slide up there, Bentley, thank you. Five things we've been looking at as we go through these verses. An elder's significance, an elder's reputation, an elder's home, an elder's character, and an elder's doctrine. Last week, we spent our entire time, uh, we, we introduced the idea of church membership at the very beginning, kind of bouncing off of the first item, an elder's significance, an elder's significant because he, he has a particular role of overseeing and shepherding the church, and of course, that implies some things about who constitutes the church and, and those people who are under the care of the elders. But last week, we spent our entire time talking about an elder's home, particularly his married life and his child-rearing life, the the elder as a husband and the elder as a father, if in fact he has a family. And we discussed that it's not necessary that an elder be married or have a family, but that Paul takes that as the typical situation and he kind of moves forward from that to give qualifications regarding that sphere of life. And so today we look at an elder's character and an elder's doctrine. But before we get into the details of an elder's character and elder's doctrine, I want to draw your attention once again to the title, the title of these sermons on an elder's qualifications. And the title I've given it is A Gospel Leader, A Gospel Leader. But before we do that, let's go in and look at our passage. So verses 7 to 9. 
That's where we will focus. Chapter one, verses seven to nine. I'll go ahead and read starting in verse five. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And here's where we will focus our attention today in the remaining verses, verses seven to nine. For an overseer, as God's steward, by the way, you see that overseer is being used interchangeably with elder as we see at the beginning of the passage. An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So let's pray to the Lord as we finish up this section of Paul's epistle to Titus. Our Father, it is a great privilege to be before your face this morning as a local church. We worship you, God, with great thanks every time we get to gather together in your name and love one another and uphold your name together. Father, help us to do that well this morning. Help us to just be delighted with you. Help us to find much comfort in your grace, your matchless grace. Help us to find much freedom in your mercy. And Lord, would you, would you spur us on, all of us, not just those who are elders or those who would desire to be an elder, but all of us, God, would you, would you push us forward by the power of the Holy Spirit in the gospel, in grace, towards the life that images and models Christ well in the world, that we might be an example to one another and that we might be a witness of you in the world. God, would you help us as a church to be on mission in this community? Would you help our gospel community groups to be challenged and encouraged to reach out more and more into the surrounding community to, to bear witness to your name as ambassadors of Christ? Would you, would you guide us and lead us as we reach out into unreached people groups into the nations to, to proclaim to them the unsearchable riches of Christ? Would you help us, Father, as we disciple one another and as we bear one another's burdens as a local body week in and week out? Would you help us, Father, to grow up into the one who is our head, into Christ himself. Would you help us to be mature in him? We ask that what we do here today would contribute to those ends. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the title, A Gospel Leader. Very, very important as we go through these qualifications. And here's what I want you to see. It is not merely about having good leaders. It's not merely about having moral leaders, upstanding leaders, or strong leaders. But what, the, what this passage calls for, what the New Testament calls for, what all of Titus calls for, is that the church needs gospel leaders. Leaders in the local church who are above all gospel men. That is what every local church 
need. So let me show you what I mean from both portions of our passage. We've got sort of two chunks here that we're going to look at today. We've got verses 7 and 8, which give together a description of the qualifications that elders must meet. And then, and then we have in verse 9, we have a description of the elder with regard to his doctrine, his teaching, and how those two things relate. So his character and his doctrine. So what I want to do is I want to show you how gospel leader is playing out in both of these sections. Just before we get into the details, I want to kind of help us to, to gravitate towards these very important points. So first, look at all of these character qualities listed in verses 7 and 8. All of these things we read there, arrogant, quick, not arrogant, <laughs> you got to put that not, <laughs> put that not in there, very important. Not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and Discipline. Now, you might be tempted, you read through this list, to think that it's merely about being upstanding or moral or having it all together. So what you do, you look out over the church, you just sort of, who's got it, who's got it the most together? Who's the most moral? Who appears to sort of have the best kind of, who's on their best behavior? Let's put those guys in charge. Let's do it that way. You might be tempted to just kind of have that very simplistic, very moralistic understanding of what's in view in these verses. But that is not the case at all. Look, look over at this passage that we have on the wall. Titus 2. And particularly, I want you to see verses, verses 11 to 12. I have to find uh, where it is over there. You could look it up in, uh, we don't have the verses marked over there. So I'll just read it to you from what I have in my notes. But you can look at it. You can follow it as you find it. Titus 2, 11 to 12. For the grace of God has appeared. Bring it, well, that's the beginning. That's at the very beginning. Sorry. So at the very beginning, look at the very beginning, the very first words. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And here's the, here's the significant point I want you to see. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So all of this living, self-controlled, upright, godly lives, all of this upright, righteous, godly stuff that we read in this passage which sort of summarizes what we have in our passage today. These words, these ideas are kind of summary words Self-controlled, upright, godly lives really captures the essence of what we find in our passage for today. And what we're told here is that all of this good living stuff comes from what? Verse 11, being trained by the gospel of grace. Do you see that? So gospel leaders who evidence the qualities outlined in Titus 1, 5 to 9 are men who have been trained by the gospel. It's that simple. So you could essentially replace, as we look at these qualifications in chapter 1, you could essentially go back and you could replace all of these things that we read with this phrase, well-trained in the gospel of grace. All the qualities that we read in verses 7 and 8 in our passage, could be replaced with this simple phrase, well-trained in the gospel of grace. So what does this mean? Well, it means that elders have experienced it. I mean, I'm sure it's inevitably the case that in certain situations, there are unconverted elders. 
I don't say that's the case here. I don't think that's the case here at all. But that happens in churches where those who are in leadership have never actually experienced the grace of God in Christ. They've never actually been converted. Their hearts have never been changed. And so this obviously includes at a very basic level that a man, in order for a man to be a gospel leader and to be everything that we see described in this passage, he must at the very basic level be converted. He must have experienced the grace of God in Christ. He must have encountered the fact that apart from Christ, he has nothing and that he repents of his sins and he turns towards Jesus as the grace of God is at work in him. They have also learned and are learning to hope in God. Part of the thing that, part of, one of the things that you see oftentimes in our lives, and we see this in all of our lives, is that we latch on to things in this world. We hope in the passions of our flesh. We hope in our careers. We hope in the money that we're going to be able to, to acquire. We hope in our relationships. We hope in all sorts of earthly things. But the gospel leader, the gospel man, is a man whose hope is entirely in God. And so that's why we get in the verse immediately, well, at the end of this, at the end of verse 12, we get this idea that gospel men are men who are waiting and renouncing. So everyone who is going to be considered for an elder is a gospel man, he's a gospel leader, and he is one who is in a state of waiting. He has a preoccupation with what Christ is going to do for him one day in the future. He is waiting. And because he's waiting, he's renouncing every day. He's renouncing hoping in something else. He's renouncing ungodly passions, as the passage says here. He's renouncing all of these things as he simply waits and waits and waits for Christ to give him what he has promised. This is a gospel man. This is a gospel leader. These sorts of men have also learned and are learning to rely on God's mercy rather than their own strength. And I emphasize here, as I have throughout this, this set of sermons on elders, is that this is a prerequisite and a pursuit. So every man who would serve any local church as an elder is going to be in a process of being conformed to the image of Christ. And so not a single man who serves as an elder is going to perfectly hope in God he, or is going to perfectly rely on God's strength. It's very frequently the case that we find ourselves as elders relying on our own strength or hoping in earthly things rather than in God himself. But we are told in Titus 3, 5, that God saved us. This is on this wall. God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So a gospel man, a gospel leader, at his core is a man who understands mercy. He's a mercy man daily preaching the gospel to himself and never boasting in any attainments of virtue. Because here's what happens. If the church just sort of looks around and says, who's the most kind of upstanding guy here or who's the most moral person here, just puts him in leadership, that person's sort of elevated above the others and then he begins to sort of pat himself on the back and boast and begin to think that he has something, that he's a cut above uh, everyone else or he has something that everyone else lacks and he begins to boast. This does not happen to a mercy man, a gospel man, a man who recognizes that everything he has is pure mercy. It did not come from his own attainments. It did not come from his own works or his own ingenuity or his own striving. God, by grace, saved this man. 
and conformed him to the image of Christ and prepared him to lead his church. That is the case for every elder, for every gospel leader. So one of the things that I introduced when I started this series on Titus is just the idea that there is absolutely, absolutely no dichotomy between grace and godliness. What we're meant to see in Titus is that this kind of grace-filled life naturally produces a life of self-control, uprightness, and godliness. So look back over here at the wall. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then look at that. Training us to renounce those things. Which means this. That a grace-filled life. Here's why there could never be a dichotomy between grace and godliness. Here's why. Because a grace-filled life. Not just a life that, that propounds grace, 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 grace. But a grace-filled life truly is a life that will always, inevitably, naturally, without fail, produce that. Because grace, by its very nature, intrinsically trains that. And trains what we're reading today in verses 7 and 8. But there is a second observation that we can make to support this idea of gospel leader. Once again, just to remind you where we're at, we're trying to sort of figure out why is it that we should think in terms of gospel leader and not just good leader or moral leader or upstanding leader. And we get this second observation from verse 9. Verse 9 says that elders and overseers are to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Now think about this for a moment. A person cannot hold firm to something that they've never held. A person can only hold firmly onto something that they have held and that they have received. And what I mean here is this. A man can only hold firm to the unsearchable riches of Christ and the power of the gospel if he has held in his own heart, in his own life, that very message of the unsearchable riches of Christ and of God's grace in Christ to remove our sins and conform us into his holy character. Unless a man has received that and held on to that in his own life, in other words, unless a man has been dealt with by the gospel, then he can never hold firm to that word and carry it forward. And therefore he can never carry out the qualification pertaining to his doctrine. So the point is very simple that I'm trying to make here. This kind of leader is not just simplistically understood as a good guy. He is one who has been acquainted with the gospel of Jesus Christ and that flows out from him to the people of God. But now, let's look at these verses in more detail. So let's go and now look at an elder's character and an elder's doctrine. All of that really was just sort of introductory stuff. I hope that that helps us to at least see kind of the contours of this passage and helps us to go back to the beginning where we are understanding what it is we're even talking about as we go through these verses, as we talk about a gospel leader. So an elder's character and an elder's doctrine. First look at an elder's character, verses seven and eight. Let's read those again. Verses seven and eight. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, 
holy, and disciplined. So here we have two lists. The first list states all of the, the, the qualities that he is not to have. In other words, it states basically his character in negative terms. These are things that are not to describe a man who is going to be considered as an elder or a man who, who serves as an elder. And then in the second portion, in verse 8, we get the six positive characteristics. These are the things that should define a man who is going to be an elder or who is serving as an elder. And I want to try to capture all of these ideas that we see, verse 7 and verse 8. I want to try to capture all of these qualities in these three ideas. I don't have these on a slide, but you can write them down. These three ideas. The elder or the elder candidate is not rising up sinking in or bursting out. That may help you just to kind of put this into a visual. He's not rising up, sinking in, or bursting out. So let's look at each of these in turn. Rising up. The elder is not to be rising up. He must not be arrogant. That's the first word that we see. And this word has the idea of pride and self-will kind of mixed together. So it's not just sort of simple pride. Some translations actually, actually say self-willed. It's not just self-willed or it's not just prideful. It's a kind of mix of those ideas. It's a prideful self-will. Some commentators have rendered it a proud self-pleaser. Or one who is proudly self-interested. Or one who is self-satisfied. You know, get that idea of someone who just sort of sits around and thinks, I'm just so great. I'm just so great. Just kind of pats themselves. By the way, we all laugh. But I mean, it, it, we, 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 we've fallen into that. Those moments where we're just like, oh, I'm so great. It happens. But this is not to characterize a person who is to serve as an elder. This is someone who has a tendency to proudly raise himself up above others. And the, it immediately begins with him being entirely concerned with his own ends or his own objectives, what it is he's about. And so he begins to separate himself from everyone else. And then that separation into himself as he's focused only on what he wants or what he wants to do, it then sort of raises him up above everyone else. So he's this self-consumed, self-satisfied, self-promoted individual with respect to the rest of the body. This is essentially what I think is being captured with this one word, arrogant, as we have it in the ESV. This blend of pride and selfishness is the exact opposite of what we read in Philippians 2, 3 to 4. So this is what it says there. And in fact, it's interesting, this, this passage really does capture the opposite of the idea. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. There's the pride part. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So this is a person that's not rising up. Not rising up in this self-satisfied way. He's also not one who is bursting out. We get that in the next three words. So he must not be quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent. And we also see that these ideas, being a drunkard and having a quick temper and being violent, 
are related also in the list in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so there's a close connection between the, the abuse of alcohol, the abuse of substances, particularly alcohol, and violent activity or quarrelsomeness or being pugnacious or bellicose, being ready to fight, ready to battle, whether it's or inwardly as you just sort of burst out in your emotions and you begin to sort of verbally abuse someone or you actually go to fighting. And in fact, in the ancient world, it, was, it, it would be common for people to just sort of fight it out. You know, maybe today that's the case too. Maybe more so in the South, I guess, is, is still kind of retained as part of the culture. But, you know, you just have, you have a little bit of an issue with someone, just fight it out. And so that kind of attitude obviously would be a problem in the church, right? I mean, people have disputes all of the time in church. And I think part of the, part of the, the one of the, I was about to say joys, I don't know if this is a joys, but one of the things that as, as you're in leadership in a church is you see that. You see how people can begin to sort of argue with one another and you have to sort of be a mediator and you have to try to bring reconciliation between people and be a peacemaker between people because you have a bird's eye view on things and you see how people can start quarreling and fighting and one of the, one of the first things that we do as people is rather than go to the person who has offended us or whom we've perceived to have offended us, which is more frequently the case, Instead of going to that person in Matthew 18 fashion, we always have a tendency to go sideways. Right? Instead of going directly to the person who's offended us or with whom we have a problem, we go sideways to a, a close friend in the Lord. And we're going to ask that person to help us to pray for that person because that person is really just not living for God and can you believe they did that to me and all of that, that's the tendency. We go sideways instead of going directly to that person. Well, all of this kind of behavior is not to be present in a man who would serve as an elder. The image here, at the end of the day, the image here is of a man who lacks self-control who lacks inner and outer restraint. This is a man who does not control what goes in. Notice that. He does not control what goes in or what comes out. He does not control what swirls around in the mind or what the body acts on from the mind. It, this is a person who is entirely lacking in self-restraint. This is not to be a pattern of life for a person who would serve in the position of elder, overseer, or shepherd of Christ's people. Regarding this word quick-tempered in particular, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle wrote this, quick-tempered persons lose no time being angry and do so with those they ought not, over things they ought not, and far more than they all. That pretty much captures it. Always angry, flying off the handle, short fuse, however you want to define it. All of these things define the kind of person who should not be in a position of eldership within a local church. Proverbs 29:22 says that one given to anger causes causes much transgression. Think about that for a moment. A person who is given over to an angry kind of disposition, who gets angry really quickly and says things that they really otherwise would not say, allows their anger to be the basis for their activity, for their acting and their speaking. 
Proverbs 29, 22 says that this kind of behavior, this kind of person causes much transgression. In other words, not only within themselves, right? We know that when we get angry and we fly off the handle, we do things, we say things that we then have to later call someone about or go meet with someone and say those words. Hopefully we do say those words. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I was rude with you or short with you. I'm sorry that I was angry and, and, and or whatever else, whatever else we, is that we need to apologize for. So we know that an angry person leaves transgression in their own lives, behind. But also an angry person leaves transgression in other people's lives. Because as an angry person comes sort of moving into a situation, they provoke other people to anger. They provoke other people to factions. They divide people. They get other people's emotions working over time. And so not only does an angry person, as Proverbs says, leave transgression in the wake in their own heart, but they leave transgression in the wake of the entire church, other people's lives, in situations. There's a lot of broken pieces after this kind of person gets done. Broken pieces metaphorically and unfortunately sometimes literally. On a very practical level, this kind of individual is quick to speak and to argue. That person, that kind of disposition, cannot be present in those who would lead Christ's people, those who would represent Christ to the world, those who would represent Christ as an example among God's people. So he's not bursting out from an uncontrolled mind into uncontrolled action. I think we have all of these ideas sort of encapsulated in that idea of not being one who is bursting out, not rising up, not bursting out. And finally, he is one who is not sinking in. What do I mean by that, sinking in? Well, we've already seen the focus on selfishness with the word translated arrogant. So we know that this arrogance, this pride is, is self-willed. And we've already seen the selfishness involved in being quick-tempered, I called it, in being quick-tempered and violent, quick to anger, being pugnacious, ready to fight, being a bully. So we already see selfishness in what we've looked at so far. But the final word in verse seven reinforces this image of sinking in as we get this word or this phrase, greedy for gain. Greedy for gain. An elder, an overseer, a pastor is not to be one who is greedy for gain. He is not to be a person who is shamelessly greedy, fond of dishonest gain, or a lover of money, as we find that in First Timothy, a lover of money. Because when a person is greedy for gain, in other words, they will go to get whatever it is they can get at everyone else's expense. They will put their focus entirely on purchasing power, what they can have. This is a person who is governed by self. There's no way that a person who is governed by self, who has a pattern of that in his life, can serve God's people. So that... Once again, illustrates this idea of sinking in. And so then we go to verse 8. And verse 8 gives us the opposite picture. Instead of isolating and exalting himself, he is hospitable. We see that at the beginning of verse 8. Instead of love of self and love of money, what do we read? He is a lover of good. 
He is upright, fair, just in his dealings with others. This is, a, this is not that kind of person that we've just described. This is a man who, who does what is right towards other people. He cares about other people. He seeks to do unto them what he would have them do to himself. At least that is the pattern. It's not a pattern of self-serving attitude and activity. Instead of lacking restraint, he is self-controlled and disciplined as we find in this passage. Disciplined in mind and in action. The first word that we have there for self-control, the, the, the first word self-control, the second word discipline, both of these ideas really mean self-control. We get them twice in verse eight. The first one has to do with self-control within one's thinking life, one's thoughtfulness, control over his thoughts. The second word has to do with control over his body, that he will discipline his body. So 1 Corinthians 9, 27 says he disciplines his body and keeps it under control. This is the image of an athlete, someone who does not allow his body to go off into all kinds of sin, but who disciplines it and holds it under control. Under the control of what? A sober mind, as we find in Ephesians 5, a mind that is filled with the Holy Spirit. That is the image that Paul is giving us here of a man who should serve God's church as an elder. He's not to be governed by one's passions or impulses. He is governed by the word of God. And ultimately, this is a man who seeks to love the Father and not love of the world. Love of the Father, not the love of the world. And I remind all of us that these are, once again, prerequisites and pursuits. These are things that all of us are in a process, being conformed into the image of Christ. Not a single elder lives these out in any perfect kind of way at all. And here's, here's the main idea that I want you to see. This is about a pattern. This is about a pattern of life. It is about a disposition of character. That's what is in view here. And I go back to the point that I've been making at the beginning of the sermons in the past, and that is that this is applicable to all of God's people. So one of the things that, one of the key points I've made is that when we get this list of qualifications, it might be tempting for those of you here who, who may be saying, well, I'm, I'm not going to be an elder, or I'm not an elder, and who knows whether you will be, but you're saying here, you know, I'm, I'm, this is not applicable to me. I'm just gonna kind of turn off and sit here and just wait till the service is over. But one of the things that we've seen is that these lists of qualities and one of the things that this passage of scripture makes very clear to us is that this list of qualities, this list of character traits are to define all of God's people, not just those who would lead. The reason that these things must be present in those who would lead is because those who lead are to lead by example. And they are, to, they are to push along and to encourage and exhort the people of God towards this kind of life. And so it is applicable to all of us who are here this morning. All right, let's move to verse 9. As we finish up this set of sermons on this passage, verse 9, an elder's doctrine. An elder's doctrine. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. If you'll go ahead and put up that next slide, Bentley. So I think what we have here, at least, there's a lot of stuff packed into these verses, but I think what we have in, I mean, to this verse, verse nine, but I think what we have here are six activities of an elder with regard to his doctrine and his teaching. I want you to see these, these six activities 
of an elder that I think are packed into verse nine. The first thing is that an elder, overseer, pastor, however you want to define, however you want to describe it, is one who receives. He is one who receives. Notice in verse nine, it says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as what? As taught. In other words, this is a man who has received something and has the responsibility of carrying that forward and conveying that for future generations. He has to receive what has already been given, what has already been taught. He has to receive this from the apostles, 2 Timothy 1.13. Follow the pattern of sound words. This is what Paul said. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is telling Timothy, what you've heard me teach, Timothy, that's what you teach. No room for creativity here, Timothy. It's not about your own thoughts. It's not about what you would like to say. You know, I I just got a few things I want to say. It's not about that, Timothy. It's not about that, Titus. It is about what, what you heard me say. These are words of sound teaching, and they are in accordance with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Trusting in Christ and living out the life of Christ, the love that he is and that he, that he demonstrated in his life, that is what we are to teach. That's what every elder must teach, which means this, to teach what we find in scripture, specifically the gospel, the fulfillment of all scripture, the gospel of Jesus Christ as explicitly discussed in the New Testament and as being fulfilled from the Old Testament, the Old Testament pointing forward towards Christ and then the Christ event being described for us in what happened and the implications of it in the New Testament. That is what we have received and that is what we are to teach. This is also the teaching of Christ. 1 Timothy 6.3. Paul says this. If anyone teaches different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, do you remember when we were in John? What did Jesus frequently say about his words? My words have come from the Father. I speak as the Father has commanded me. I say nothing except what the Father has spoken to me. In other words, Jesus himself, the incarnate Son of God, did not take it upon himself to share just something off the cuff, random, that he wanted to share. His message was exactly what the Father had given him. And we, as Christians who come after Jesus, the apostles received precisely what Jesus had taught them. And we who come after the apostles, we receive and we teach precisely what the apostles taught. We have no freedom here. There's no freedom here to teach what we would please. The elder must receive, not invent. And this is important too, not muddle, muddle. So it's not just about inventing. We've got teachers like that. You can turn on your TV or listen to different podcasts. We have inventors, inventors of, of truth, so-called. But we also have many who muddle the truth of God, who take the truth of God as kind of a, a little kernel a little basis upon which they can then expound all sorts of opinions and psychology and all sorts of other things that come from their own brain, that come from their own experiences and and often from their own imagination rather than that which came from the Father through the Son, 
to the apostles written, which we must teach always. There's no freedom here to just simply make up our own instruction. So he receives. He also clings. The first words of the verse are these. He must hold firm. He holds firm. It says this. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. What does it mean that he clings to this? He's received it and then he clings to it or he holds firm or holds fast to it. Well, I think it means two things. One, it means that he refuses to compromise the essentials. That there are, in fact, closed-handed things which he must not compromise on. These are things that he must stand on within the context of the local church. So when there are people in the local church who would say, no, these essentials of the Christian faith are not true, these, these things associated with the gospel, the gospel itself is not true, he must be one who says, no, I refuse that. That is not from Jesus. That is not from the apostles. That is not truth. So he refuses to compromise the essentials of the Christian faith and even rippling out from the essentials. I mean, we have essentials, but an elder has a responsibility to proclaim the word of God, not only in its essentials, but also in all that he believes as he studies the scriptures, the Bible teaches, and to demonstrate that with scripture, to teach scripture with scripture, to explain scripture with scripture, so that those things are held too tightly and they're conveyed forward for God's people to believe and to live. But clinging also means that he must be devoted. He must be devoted to the book. If every elder saw himself as most fundamentally a man who is tied to the book, that would revolutionize churches. It would revolutionize my own life, revolutionize the lives of our other elders, revolutionize the life of this church, would revolutionize our churches everywhere. If elders, if those who led God's people, if we begin more and more to cling to the book and to devote our time to it, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, that, that our, our focus when we wake up in the morning, yeah, I have this to do, I have that to do, I have this to do, this, but the book, the book, the truth of God, that's my life, that's what I breathe for with the time that I have. I will devote myself to this book. How many trivial things do we do with our time? When the book sits unread, unheard, unstudied, just a cursory, superficial knowledge, when the depths of scripture are just awaiting for us to explore them. He's devoted, he's devoted. He never lets the book slip from his grasp. So he clings. Thirdly, he believes. Notice verse nine, what it says is he must hold firm to the what? To the trustworthy word. He must be a man who believes the word. He believes that it is trustworthy and he believes that it is profitable and sufficient. You know, uh, we struggle with this, especially in our day and age, where we tend to think about everything in terms of therapy. And we, we tend to say that for everything in my life, I need to go here and go there and seek help here and read books about that and do this and do that. All the while, the Bible sits unread. 
And the Bible is really just to sort of give us a little information about Jesus so we can get saved and go to heaven and, you know, maybe some, some quick little nuts and bolts about how to, how to do this well or how to do that well or how to relate to these people well or, sorry, bring it to church with me and we read it a little bit and this kind of thing. But the Bible is sufficient for all of life. The Bible is sufficient to take care of us, to sustain us, to nourish us, to make us mature as we grow up into the head who is Christ. It's kind of like we think about, I, I would like a better life. I would like to be a more, a more wholesome person. I would like to be a healthier person. What you're saying when you say that is I want to be more like Jesus. That's what you're saying when you say it because Jesus was perfect. He was perfect in mind, in action, he never sinned. He was perfect in every conceivable way. Shalom, peace, perfect integration of all of life, entirely present in the life of the Lord Jesus. And how is it that we are conformed to the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit? And the Holy Spirit has written a book, the Bible. And that is the means by which he conforms us into the image of Christ. The Bible's sufficient. The elder must believe this. The elder must believe that the Bible is this sufficient this efficacious, this profitable for every area of life. And he must relate to God's people with this confidence, with this trust. He must believe that it is trustworthy. It is the trustworthy word. Fourthly, he is competent, competent. First Timothy 3, 2 says this, he is able to teach. He is able to teach. There will be various degrees of giftedness among men who are called to eldership. There will be men who exercise their teaching responsibility and their teaching giftedness in different ways. And we see this even here in our own church among the elders who serve here. But at the heart of what it means to be an elder, an overseer, a pastor, is that he must be able to teach. And verse 9 shows us that that ability is present. It goes on to say, so that he may be able you see that? He clings to the word. He receives the word. He clings to the word. He believes it's trustworthy so that he might be able to do what? To give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he is competent. Now I want to say this about elders and counseling because this is something that we, we recently have talked about and I've talked with a number of other pastors about this and this is kind of one of those areas that can become a little bit difficult as you as you parse it out and try to figure out to what point at what point in a in a local church a problem arises whether it's in a marriage or whether it's in someone's life let's say that someone is having problems with pornography or let's say that a marriage is beginning to break apart there's been adultery or whatever else and and there's just problems the first thing obviously that that elders do and I emphasize their plural that elders do is to begin to come alongside of that person and minister to them God's truth and one of the kind of murky questions that you oftentimes have at some point is, at what point does, do we need to recommend that this particular individual go and see a Christian counselor? Because we know that God in his providence and his grace has raised up many great Christian counselors and many great Christian counseling resources, and we have them all over the place. And so there are people who devote their, their, their waking hours to counseling in this specific way and, and who counsel specifically on marriage or who counsel specifically on addiction or who counsel specifically on sexual sin or whatever else it might be. The, murky, the murkiness of all of this is, is this. There's a temptation among elders to immediately 
go to that. Or to go to that too, too quickly. And here's why I say that. The elders have a responsibility to apply God's sufficient and profitable word to his people well. Well. In one-on-one discipleship and counseling interactions. So it's a wisdom call. At what point that individual should go and see a, a, a Christian counselor or should seek clinical help or whatever, whatever the case might be. But here's the point I want you to see. Elders must participate in counseling and administering the word of God to his people. Trusting that it is sufficient and profitable. And by the way, this counseling of God's word, this counseling of God's people with his word, it grows out of clinging, believing, and being competent. He clings to it, so he's a man of the book. And here's the thing, the ideal situation, someone comes to an elder and says, I've got this problem. A flood of God's truth comes forward and boom, comes to bear on that situation. Comes to bear on all of Satan's lies, on all of Satan's temptations. God's truth brought to bear like a dump truck on that situation. It's the way it ought to be. God's truth should be that present in the mind of an elder. And we're all convicted here. But this, I believe, is what we find in these verses. Able to teach, and here, he must be one who is able to give instruction in sound doctrine. The last two that we have in this verse, he builds up and he tears down. The word for give instruction is to urge strongly, to exhort or to encourage. That's what happens in preaching, is there's exhortation, there's strong urging from God's truth. Remember in John 21, when they were on the shore and Jesus asks Peter, do you love me, Peter? In that, that wonderful passage where, where Jesus is restoring Peter because he had denied him three times. And he asks him, do you love me, Peter, three times? And every time Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus tells him one thing, essentially. Feed my sheep. That's what Peter went on to do until he was crucified upside down. And that's what Paul went on to do. And that's what he's doing right here. That's what all of Jesus' apostles went on to do was feed God's sheep. And that's what every elder since the first century in every country, in every church has been called to be and do. One who feeds Christ's sheep. Do you love me, Lonnie? Do you love me, Mike? Do you love me, Ken? Do you love me, Walt? Then feed my sheep. That's what the Lord says to us, just as he said that to Peter and to anyone who would desire the office of elder to serve in that capacity. Finally, he is one who tears down. The elder is to rebuke those who contradict the received, trustworthy, and healthy teaching. Now, we've already looked at the fact that the elder must not be quarrelsome. So we've got that. We've filed that away. He must not be argumentative. He must not be quick to speak and quick to get angry. But he must be a man who is ready 
to fight for the truth, period. He, must, he cannot be a coward when it comes to God's truth. He must be ready to fight, to fight with gentleness and with love and with much exhortation, but also with rebuke. And he must do that with the word in accordance with sound doctrine. But he must not do that in a quarrelsome, argumentative, or angry way. To tear down and drive away what detracts from the glory of Christ and the good of his flock. You know, one of the things that I've oftentimes struggled with is sometimes when there are Christian leaders who speak against other Christian leaders. You kind of see this, right? You see this in, 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 well, you don't really see it in the news, but you, you sort of encounter it in various places, conferences, and so forth. You, you see Christian leaders, and by leaders, I simply mean those who are kind of in the public eye, those who are well-known, criticizing other Christian leaders. And I guess throughout, you know, especially in seminary, that was one of the things that we talked a lot about is, you know, is, okay, to what extent is that appropriate? And, and how does that, how, how should that look? And, and, and when, when should you say something? And after, you know, much thought on this, and specifically here as we look at this passage, it is the responsibility of men who love the truth to speak in public about public men who trample on the truth. It must be done. And that is also what is required of those within the church who lead God's people with his truth into conformity to Christ's image. Let's pray. Our good Father, we thank you, Lord, for your truth. We thank you for that which Jesus received from the Father and which he declared and evidenced in his life, incarnate deity, as we sing at Christmas. And then all the revelation that Christ was and that Christ gave to his apostles and the power of the Holy Spirit as he as he made that truth evident to them and as he regenerated them and came to dwell in them and pushed them forward in gospel mission, as we read in Acts chapter two with Peter's sermon, as we look at Paul's life and all of the sufferings that he endured and yet he pressed on, he pressed on toward the upward call of Christ Jesus. He, he knew that you, God, had sent your son to die for sinners and that you had raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand and that one day all of this world would be destroyed. There would be a new heaven and a new earth and Christ would rule and reign in perfect righteousness and that all those who trust in him and follow after him and wait on him would reign with him in glory. And this body of truth has been passed down to us, Father. We stand here today in the 21st century and we have your word. And God, we ask that as a church, we would be faithful to your word. We'd be committed and devoted to it, that we would cling to it, that we would apply it to the lives of your people and that those here who serve as elders, those who would come to serve as elders, those in our church who desire to be in vocational ministry and who are trying to discern whether or not that's your will, God, that we would be those who cling so tightly, that we'd be men of the book and that we would pass this truth, this received truth, on, that we would instruct your people, feed your flock, and that we would refute those who teach godless error. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.